Welcome to Outside the Music Box. I'm Chloe Prendergast. And I'm Emma Williams. We're both violinists based in the Netherlands, and we're so glad you've joined us today. Each episode of this podcast explores a different piece of music through the eyes of a guest musician. Today's guest is our friend, American violinist Anna Jane Lester, who we both met while studying Baroque violin at the Conservatory in The Hague. She chose to bring in a sonata for three violins by 17th century Italian composer Giovanni Battista Buonamente. Throughout this episode, you'll hear us talk about the Baroque violin and early music. Basically, this means that we play on old instruments from the time the music was written, and we research the historical context of each piece to inform the way we interpret the music. Don't worry about trying to remember the pieces and recordings we talk about. They are in the show notes, along with a link to a Spotify playlist. Thanks for joining us, and enjoy Buonamente's Sonata for Three Violins. starting by introducing yourself? Sure. Um, I'm Anna J. Lester, and I'm a violinist from Jacksonville, Florida, now living in The Hague. Yep, that is true. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And what piece have you brought us today? I brought a Buonamente Sonata for three violins. And um, can you tell us about the first time you heard this piece? Yes. So I um, hadn't heard this piece before it was programmed on a concert that I was going to play in um, Augsburg, Germany. When it was programmed, I performed it with the other two violinists were my teachers at the time. So What um, year was this? This was 2014. So I had been focusing on Baroque violin for only a year. So I was... Mm really a newbie um and I was geeking out about playing it with my teachers yeah (laughs) that's really cute (laughs) and where is Augsburg Germany um it's where uh Leopold Mozart lived oh cool Leopold Mozart being Mozart the famous one's father yes was it like a summer festival or was it a yeah it was just it was just a week of concerts that um I was studying Juilliard at the time um, and they did in collaboration with um, Christoph Hammer, who was teaching um, keyboard. So you all went over from America to do this whole thing in Germany? Yeah, there was a small group of us. It was um, a traverso player, Melanie Williams um, was there, a bassoonist, Alan Hamrick, um, Michael Unterman on cello. And I was already there with Michael because we had both just come from um, – Britain Piers Baroque Orchestra sort of academy where we were playing Monteverdi. And then it was really fun to go join our Juilliard friends and play Buonamente, who like worked with Monteverdi too. Just for some context, Buonamente was an Italian composer working during the start of the 17th century. This piece was published as part of his sixth book in 1636, which was apparently the year that a lot of universities were founded, including Harvard and the University of Utrecht in the Netherlands. At this point in his life, he had already done heaps of traveling around Europe while working for the Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand II. He probably also worked under the so-called father of opera, Claudio Monteverdi. Buonamente was also a Franciscan friar, and the last position he held was in their home turf of Assisi. 
He was music director there, and this is where he wrote the sonata for three violins. So I was already sort of in that zone. Yeah, super nice. cool. Yeah. The zone that we call the early Italian zone. <laughs> but in Germany. <laughs> yeah, early Italian times in Germany. Well, I guess that's quite fitting because, like, they were always travelling around. Like, all of these composers, like, Buonamente was travelling around heaps and kind of going yeah. in between all of those countries around, like, Germany, Austria, Italy. Yeah, kind he of. definitely crossed the Alps and uh, then went back. which like i think was kind of a big deal back then yeah like in the seven in the 17th century yeah to be a dude who like gets to go all of these different places that was a pretty big deal yeah Yeah. it was a trek for Mm. sure definitely (laughs) getting over the alps must have been like really treacherous yeah now And with a violin, yeah. I mean, I'd be scared. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah you have yeah. to be committed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you have to be committed for sure. Slash, your employer has to be committed, and then you don't have a lot of choice. I mean, <laughs> one or the other, right? Yeah, fair yeah. enough. <laughs> yeah. Um. So what what made you fall in love with this piece? Um. I. Wow. A, a lot of reasons. Um, the main one is actually just how it feels to play, which Mm -hmm. I feel so lucky that I get that experience as a violinist. But I think that, you know, if, if all of the violinists, if all the musicians performing it are like feeling how awesome that is too, then that translates to the audience also. So hopefully. Yeah. Mm. And what do you mean by it feels awesome to play it? Um, it's actually based on a really simple motif, uh, just a descending scale. That There's sort of this theme that's just a bunch of descending scales. It's really simple. Um, but what Bonamente does with it is he just keeps layering the violins on top of each other. So they just keep sort of building and playing in thirds, just really singing out together, which is just one of my favorite feelings in the world is just playing in really resonant harmony with a colleague. Scales are the basis of music. They're kind of like the alphabet of musical language and are really useful for shaping the way music is organized. This is what a major scale sounds like. By using different notes of a scale together, we create harmony. You just heard Anna talking about thirds being stacked on top of each other. In this case, one violin plays the descending major scale, and then the other two violins answer in thirds, creating a lush, beautiful harmony. Mm, Yeah, Yeah. I guess, yeah, all of those thirds and fifths stacked on top of each other just makes all of the instruments resonate that much more together, just naturally. Yeah, you just, it's really, you feel really connected to the people that you're playing with. Um, The first time that I played it, I, yeah, I was a Baroque violin newbie. um, And I was playing with these two amazing violinists. And it's one of these pieces where if you're playing with an amazing violinist, they make you sound better because you just sort of like are riding this wave together. So it felt really awesome. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, thank you. <laughs> that is so true. I remember the first time a teacher described that to me. She was like, you probably, it's a lot easier to play with somebody who's better because they make you sound better yes. because they're also better at adjusting mm-hmm. to what you're doing so that it makes it makes the group sound better. Yeah. So then we just like had this amazing, like our violins are all connected and ringing and we're all totally tuned into each other. It's such an amazing feeling playing that piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yes, the three voices are definitely written written equally. Um, the, they, they each have a chance to have sort of an epic solo with the theme too, and they can do their own ornaments. Yeah, it's, it's really collaborative feeling. That was a really influential concert for me. Yeah, mm. cool. Yeah. Um, can you talk about that ornament situation a little bit? <laughs> yeah, so I mentioned before that um, the theme itself is actually pretty simple. It's a bunch of descending scales. But um, Bonamente was writing in this new sort of, in this new style where instrumentalists could sort of um, think vocally, really try to sing through their instruments. And there was a big connection between the ornaments that singers were doing, embellishments, adding just improvised notes and beautiful turns to the lines. And um, instrumentalists were doing the same with theirs. And this piece is basically just this beautiful template for the performers to express however they're feeling about like the motif in the moment, um, get a little more virtuosic, like reflect sort of make with intensity or simplicity, reflect the architecture of the piece and the emotional journey of the piece a bit. Yeah. And um did you find it hard, easy? What what was it like doing that ornamenting, especially as a Baroque newbie? Because <laughs> I know that that's like a thing that really intimidated me. Yeah, it definitely. Um, luckily, I had just come from a super intense, like I said, a Monteverdi, like two weeks. We also did a chamber concert there. So I was, I was in the early Italian zone. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> So that definitely helped. Um, I was also doing a lot of imitating my teachers. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Hopefully in different ways. Hopefully yes. I added something. Yeah. But it's like, until you make it. And when any voice does even the same notes, it's going to sound different because you're different humans playing mm-hmm. it. Yeah. yeah. Like that does automatically happen. Yeah. Which part were you playing? To be honest, I don't remember which line I was playing but I do remember um so Bonamente writes um a high e in one of the parts which is like pretty much the highest that any violinist yeah. played at the time it was like mm-hmm. a total diva note and everyone would have felt it it would have been like shockingly high people like really would have felt how that note was like pushing the limits of the instrument at the time yeah um, and I didn't play that note that that first concert but then for my, I, I programmed this piece on my final master's recital and I gave myself the diva note because it was my recital. So yes. yeah. <laughs> of course. That's the point of your own recital. Yeah. yeah. 
And here's the high diva note Anna was just talking about. Um, you said there there were a lot of things that made you fall in love with it. What else? Mm. Uh, I also really like the middle section. Um, I, I've talked a lot about these soaring scales, um, but the middle section is really just a dance, which also feels really good to play on the violin. The violin is really a dancing instrument. Um, I love how the German word for violin, Geige, is connected to the word jig. Like it's really, ah, yeah. it, um, it's really natural to accompany dance on a violin. The way that our bow can like move down and create heavy beats and rhythms. And then, and the bow dances too. It, it feels really connected. So I love that the piece is broken up by that section too. Yeah. Yeah. So you, um, this piece kind of has, I guess you'd say like three main sections, right? So we've got mm-hmm. the first bit that the scales kind of build on top of each other and then it goes into this triple dance, so a dance in three, and then mm-hmm. it goes back to something similar to the start and the third right. section, right? Yeah, except each violin has an extended solo in the last part, really. Mm-hmm. He yeah. changes the theme a bit. Yeah, yeah. Extended solo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which get that little yeah. moment. <laughs> um, and this is, I mean, I find this such an interesting part of uh, this style of music, um, sort of in the early 17th century styles of, of composition where, like, you just have, like, a long piece that just kind of went seamlessly from one section to another without any breaks and it would kind of really change character quite quickly between these mm-hmm. sections. Um and I've always found it really interesting to get my head around that. Like, cause I mean, with later music, we're used to having movements. So different like sections of a big piece that actually just stop and you like, you know, that's usually where people cough and then you can kind of <laughs> maybe, <laughs> you know, take a second to regroup and then go on to the next like character or whatever. But these, yeah. this kind of fantasy style writing from the early 17th century is it's just so fluid. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I'm interested to hear like how you feel playing that kind of music compared to sort of movements, movement style pieces. It's definitely, um, a more concrete way of seeing the whole arc of the piece for Mm -hmm. sure. When we play sort of start, stop movements, we, we want the piece to tell a story, but, um, you, it's definitely an extra effort to keep the magic and the tension. And of course our gut strings are always going out of tune and I want to tune in the middle of movements and to, yeah. to keep the, the dramatic arc of start stop um, pieces going. Whereas with these pieces that just flow from one section to the next, you really can create a story with that. It's written in already. Mm. Like, yeah cut like flowing straight back into the return of the the scales in the Bonamente right after the dance section you really feel that you've arrived to a new place and Mm. you experience the theme differently yeah yeah and how I mean can you remember how it feels to come back to that theme after the dance 
Hmm. Your energy, you're still holding on to a lot of energy that you've built up through the dance. Hmm. And it doesn't just disappear as soon as you play a long note. The long note becomes really charged with the energy that you've, that you still have. So like, at least I find it feels really natural if you're coming, if you're the violinist that has the solo right when the theme comes back, like that you embrace sort of the, the excitement and then just channel it into like a really rich, deep, meaningful, longer phrase. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. After you played this piece the first time, I I know because we are friends that <laughs> um, you kind of kept dreaming of playing this piece. But I don't actually know. Did you play it between that first time and your final master exam, however many years later? No, I did not. Wow. Um, yeah, it's uh, if you want to play Baroque chamber music, often you really have to organize it yourself. A lot, especially a lot of early Italian music, like there are different instrumentations. Um, so it can often be a really random sort of ensemble that you have to get together for a concert, yeah. um, which just logistically, you have to be really committed to that. I was busy with studies. Um, I was busy practicing. So I just used my final recital as a, the theme of my final recital was music that I like. Um, <laughs> It's a great theme. <laughs> yeah. Um, so can you talk us through how that process was, like choosing what kind of instruments to, to use for this um, for this piece? Because, um, you know, it the bass line in these types of pieces is literally just, just a bass line with very simple just notes. Like they don't even often tell you, like, exactly what chords to play. Um, so kind of like in jazz um, where you've just got these kind of like sheets of, of chords. Um, yeah. you can, you have all this freedom to, to do what you want with it. So what, what did you choose for your final recital in terms of instrumentation? Also, what did you play? Do you remember what you played with the first time you did it? Was it different? Um, the first time I did it, it was with, I think, harpsichord and cello. Mm-hmm. And on my exam, I did it with cello, organ, and harp. Um, nice. Wow. I think that in this music, the bigger the continuo section, the more fun. They can just yeah. build off of yeah. each other. Organ provides such a solid bass harmonically, and just the sound is really warm and nice to play into. Um, I just love when harps and the orbos and the plucked instruments get really swirly and can really shape the bass line and inspire the way that you play the top line. Mm. Yeah. They do a beautiful role that grows in the middle of a note. You just can't help but grow with them. So Mm -hmm. that was fun. Yeah. Yeah. As we just talked about, there are many bass or basso continuo instrument options in Baroque music. Different combinations create different colors and textures in the music. 
Here are two examples of this piece being played with different basso continuo teams. Here's the piece with only Theorbo, which is an old style of guitar with a very long neck. And here is one with harpsichord and cello. And what's, what would be like your dream location and like instrument continuo team for this piece? Oh, oh man, probably cello, organ, harp, and theorbo, and then Great. in some Northern Italian church <laughs> on, yeah. a, on a mountain, right? <laughs> on a mountain that I got yeah. to hike up to. Yeah. <laughs> Um, how was it playing this piece in the hall at the conservatory in the, in the Hague? Did you kind of feel like you had to imagine being in one of those churches to make it feel good to play? It's kind of hard in those big halls to to feel really intimate with the music, I find at mm. least. Yeah, I remember we talked a lot about that. We, in, in the end, decided to play it pretty spread out on the stage, actually. Mm. Um what feels best often is just to play as close together as possible. I wish I could just clump all of my colleagues around me so I could just be in the middle of their sound at all times. <laughs> um, but that often doesn't make the best audience experience. So. No. <laughs> no. so we we really tried to fill up the stage and really spread out actually on purpose to try to create a sort of stereo effect. Um mm. There's the famous um, Venetian echoes where people talk about how musicians would stand in different corners of St. Mark's in Venice and um, create a stereo effect and do, and that's why the composers wrote so many echo effects, which is definitely in the Buonamente 2 at the end. And here are those echoes. Um, and so I guess, I mean, this, this type of music is not very well known, even like within the kind of classical music community, this early 17th century Italian music. Are there other composers or pieces out there that you love that are kind of related to Buonamente or um, that you feel are connected to, to his music that people should check out? Mm. A great place to start is definitely Monteverdi. He was... Mm -hmm in the middle of this scene, a lot of musicians that wrote in this style were connected to him in some way. And you also pretty much can't go wrong with his music. If you just type Monteverdi into Spotify and click on anything, your mind is going to be blown. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we, we credit Monteverdi with writing the first opera, yeah. um, Orfeo, which like, how can you say who really wrote the first opera? Mm -hmm. But he was groundbreaking. Yeah. Also, I was noticing that there's a part right at the end of this piece 
that sounds super similar to the beginning of a Costello sonata for two uh, treble instruments and a bass. Mm. There's, I don't know, just a few measures at the end of this Buonamente that mm. uh, sounds exactly like that beginning of the Costello to me. Here's the end of the Buonamente. which reminds me of the beginning of this Costello sonata. Also, the way that it ends is hilarious. He just, like, mm. doesn't end it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. The violinists sort of trail off into nothing, imitating each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then there's yeah. just a bass chord at the end, like, well, I guess I'll, we'll resolve it. Boom. Yep. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> Yeah, which is this actually kind of the same with how it ends. I mean, it doesn't end the same way, but it ends in a also really surprising way in that Costello. Like it builds up, and then there's this really insane crunchy harmonies that just get like pounded over and over again, and then it's just kind of like, ah, and you're just kind of done. <laughs> Here's the ending of the Buonamente. And here's the ending of the Costello. would you use to describe this piece? Mm. Beyonce. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Just because every violinist has their moment to do some like finger wagging solo, like, yeah, <laughs> really feel it. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. What is the affect for this Buonamente? Beyonce. Beyonce. <laughs> and I think also with the ornamentation freedom, I mean, it's just like Beyonce. I mean, she just goes to town on on her own mm -hmm, ornamentation. Yeah. She's always ornamenting things. Here's an example of a violinist ornamenting the melody line in the Buonamente. And here's Beyonce going to town on her ornamentation at the end of her song, Best Thing I Never Had.
actually, and speaking of Beyonce, we were um, Chloe and I were sort of looking through bits of the piece beforehand because we're really good at being prepared. Um, and, <laughs> <laughs> and we were kind of noticing, like going back to that, how the piece is structured and, and how these sort of 17th century Italian works were the fluid way of moving through different sections rather than stopping and starting with movements. And then like later in the 18th and 19th centuries, pieces are longer and they have proper movements that stop and start again. And then we get back into like the 20th century, um, things start becoming a little bit more kind of fluid again, which we call through composed. Um, And we were actually thinking like, you can also see that kind of cyclic way of um, structuring things in like pop music as well. Like we used to always have like a whole album that would be curated and, you know, people, the bands would choose what piece would come next and it would be this whole journey. And then, then singles kind of became more popular because of sort of technology. And then like nowadays it's kind of gone back to like really curating an album and like we were thinking about Beyonce's Lemonade and like Janelle Monet with Dirty Computer and like all yeah. these like really awesome artists now who are actually starting to like create those longer journeys through their art again. Yeah, that's so true. I love that mm. connection. Yeah. Mm. Um, um, are you ready for our final question? Am I? Yes. <laughs> Um, we want to know what piece from another instrument's repertoire are you jealous of? Oh, ha, so much. <laughs> <laughs> I am jealous. Can I say two? Sure. I'm jealous of the Haydn Cello Concerto in C. And yeah. I'm also jealous of a Chaconne by Murray in his uh, fifth book for the viola da gamba i just love chacones and i love the sound of the gamba not Mm. i mean if i could play it on violin then i would lose that part but all the chords it's ah it's great i wish i could steal that piece yep yeah nice yep (laughs) (laughs) oh great um what's the best way for people to get in touch with you if you have a website um i don't have a website but my info is on my string quartet's website, and we knew. <laughs> which Chloe does. What's about. your string quartet? <laughs> We're called the Butter Quartet, like the food. Awesome um, name. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Butterquartet.com, and uh, there is a contact there, and that's where most of my info is on the internet. So, yeah, cool, and heaps of butter puns and mm. fun Instagram yes. posts yes. of you guys being silly. Yeah, check out our Instagram. It is pretty um, butter <laughs> pun full. Oh, yeah, I guess we haven't clarified. I am also in that string quartet. Clarified. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Shameless plug, but follow us on Instagram for lols. Yep, do it. <laughs> much for tuning into Outside the Music Box. We hope you enjoyed our chat with Anna Jane Lester. If so, please rate and review this podcast. It really makes a difference in the algorithm and helps our visibility. We'd also love to hear from you. 
If you have any questions or want to share music that you love, you can write to us at concerts.musicbox at gmail.com or check out our website, musicboxconcerts.com or find us on Facebook and Instagram at musicboxconcerts. In the show notes, we've included links to two Spotify playlists, one for the main pieces we discuss and the other for the other pieces we chat about. However, we really encourage you to purchase music in order to support the artists. The best way to support Anna is going to the Butter Quartet website, which we've linked in the show notes. See you next time, Outside the Music Box.